Let's pray that God will talk to us because we're going to look tonight at Paul's closing words and the friends that he mentions and characteristics about each of them that are going to show you and I what we should look for in a friend and what we should be like in our walk with the Lord, all right? So let's pray. Father, we just thank you tonight that you've got a message for us in these closing verses in Colossians. You've got a word. It's inspired by you. And so we ask you to speak to us, Lord. Minister your word to us. And we thank you for edifying us in the faith in Jesus' name. We breathe a prayer, church, and just say, Lord, speak to my heart tonight. I receive your word in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You can be seated. Let me just go ahead and dive right in. This is a roll call of Paul's friends and the message that they left behind. How many of you know all of you are going to leave a legacy? I don't know if you've thought much about your legacy. The older you get, you tend to think about your legacy. What are people going to remember about me? And what is the legacy I want to leave behind? Well, the Bible is going to show us the legacy that uh, a lot of people that Paul names by name, uh, friends of his, acquaintances, ministry partners, what was the legacy they left behind? So we're going to get to that, but we'll cover a few things first. Last time we looked at the habits of a successful Christian, and what were they? Paul discussed the habit of prayer, the habit of behaving wisely toward the lost, the habit of using time wisely, and the habit of wise speech. He said, I want you to be wise. We've been talking about wisdom for nine weeks now on Sunday mornings. We need wisdom. We need wisdom for our habits, wisdom for the way we live our life, wisdom for how we walk in front of lost people. We need God's wisdom. Now, the final aspect of wise speech that we didn't get to last week is our speech should be knowledgeable. Everybody say with me, God gave me a brain. He really did, and he expects us to have some knowledge. And so Paul says that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Now, the each one, he's talking about people who are lost, people who are seeking, people who are outside the church, who don't know the Lord. We must not be like the man who, when he was asked what he believed, replied, well, I believe what the church believes. When asked, and what does the church believe, he said, well, the church believes what I believe. Then when asked, well, then what do you both believe? He said, well, we both believe the same. In other words, I don't have a clue what I believe. Listen, folks, we can't be vacant in between our two ears. It's great to have spiritual experiences, but we must know how to answer every man who's lost. And so I read all the time. I read a lot of things that have nothing to do with Scripture directly. But I read about what are the evolutionists saying? What are the atheists saying? What are the agnostics saying? What is their argument? I read about it because I want to know how to answer every man. I'm always preparing for a debate. I want to be able to answer them. In our day, they need more than Jesus loves you, this I know. They want to know why you believe what you believe and what do you really believe. And I think right now in the church, there is a dearth of understanding of the Scriptures. We don't know the Word like we should. And so we're losing the battle out there. We're losing the battle of ideas in the society, in the culture. 
So we're going to have to read up and prepare because Paul says you ought to know how to answer every man when they ask you. Okay? Now, this requires knowing your Bible and knowing it well. It also requires being well taught. And if you come here, you will be well taught. I will see to it you're well taught. We're not just going over a verse or two uh, that we harp on over and over again ad nauseum. We're going through whole books. I want you to know your Bible. I want you to know what the Bible says and how to answer people. All right? Now, next Paul begins a roll call of his companions and colleagues in the ministry. The names ring out, and I get a, I get a special crown in heaven for naming these names. All right? Tychicus. Everybody say Tychicus. Now, you thought it was Tychicus. So did I, but it's Tychicus, which reminds me of a tick. I, it makes me itch. That name makes me itch. It just does, but it's Tychicus. And then there's Onesimus and Aristarchus and Marcus and Archippus and so on. And we don't use most of those names anymore, and I understand why. Now, they stood for the truth, these people, these men, that Paul is listing at the end of Colossians. They stood for the truth. Now, remember, what is Colossians written for? To answer the heresy of Gnosticism. Doesn't matter what Gnosticism stood for. It was a cult. All we need to know is that Gnosticism undermined and marginalized and devalued the person and the work of Christ. And anything that does that is a cult. And we need to be very careful in our day of any message, any teaching that marginalizes, that sells short the ministry and the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Okay? So that's what we need to know about Gnosticism. In a nutshell, that's what it was doing, as do all cults. Now, Paul is holding up these men at the end of the letter as those who stood with him in his indictment against the teaching of the Gnostics. They are his friends, his ministry partners, his helpers. Now, they weren't perfect. One of them became a noted backslider. We're going to talk about him in a minute. And another one needed a word of rebuke, and we'll talk about him in a minute. They weren't perfect. How many of you in here are in that category? You're not perfect. If you're perfect, can I meet you afterwards, please? Because there's nobody perfect. These men weren't perfect, but they were true. They weren't perfect, but they were sincere. They weren't perfect, but they were real. They were genuine. They really believed in Christ, and they fought for the faith delivered to the saints. Now, Paul lines them up, representatives, representatives of those that stood with the truth against the lie of Gnosticism, and they represent orthodox, fundamental, evangelical, mainstream, historic Christianity. What the list I just gave you, all those adjectives are under attack again in our day. Orthodoxy, fundamental, evangelical, mainstream, historic Christianity are under vicious attack right now in our day. What is God looking for? The same kind of people that stood with Paul because the battle never ends. It will not end until Christ returns. So we're all called to stand up for the faith. 
once delivered to the saints. And that's what Jude 3 tells us to do. I've got some fighters in here. Anybody want to stand up for the faith? The faith? The faith? All right. Now Paul lines up these men in protest against those people at Colossae who had broken from the ranks to chase after Gnostic fantasies. Now the Holy Spirit saw to it that behind the name of each one of these men, a character trait can be found. And we want to dig and find those character traits and look at them. Now for the most part, the names Paul lists provide a beautiful, powerful collection of traits that the Christian would look for in a friend and would seek to develop in his own life. So let's glean from these men. First we have, say with me, Tychicus. Anybody in here named Tychicus? All right. In Tychicus, here's what we see. The faithful man. The faithful man. Look what he says. He writes, Tychicus, a beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord will tell you all the news about me. Now look what Paul says about him. I'm sending him to you for this very purpose, that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts. Tychicus, the faithful man. Now he first appears, this name, first appears towards the end of the book of Acts as one of Paul's companions on his third missionary journey. All right? He was likely saved in Ephesus under Paul's ministry. You could not get around Paul if you were lost and not have him go for your soul. Now due to a riot, Paul had been forced to leave Ephesus in a hurry. So he decided to go to Jerusalem from there, and he was accompanied on his trip by a group of remarkable friends who stood with him, mostly delegates from various Gentile churches he had founded. These people stood with this. If you followed Paul around, your life was in danger. Because everywhere he went, riots followed. I mean, they threw rocks. They threw you in prison. You were shipwrecked. You went through all kinds of trials and trouble. If you followed Paul, your life was on the line. Now, what he's, what he's giving us here is men who said, you know what? If I die with you, I'll die with you. Because your cause, Paul, is my cause. Your Christ is my Christ. And I'll die with you because I'll die for him just like you will. Now these men were bearing financial aid to the impoverished Jerusalem church. They had taken up offerings and they were going to Jerusalem to relieve the poor. Now seven of them are named Antichicus was one of them. Paul gives us a twofold glimpse of this man. First, he says, I want you to take a look at his character. At his character. Now in our day, we don't look at character. Our culture doesn't look at character. The media, the magazines don't look at character. They look at bodies. Oh, look how so-and-so has trimmed down. Oh, no, look how so-and-so has put on weight. You would think that a person's value was according to how much they weigh or how much plastic surgery they've had or how they're dressing. But the Bible says of God, man looks on the outer appearance, but God looks at the heart. And I'm going to tell you something, church. God cares about character. So Paul is talking, bragging on these people's 
character. He was a beloved brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant in the Lord. And Paul valued his friendship. He called him one of the most endearing things possible in the New Testament. Beloved brother. That was a term of endearment in the New Testament. Tychicus had done one of the very things that Jesus commended. He dared to visit Paul in prison. If you visited Paul in prison, you may very well end up in there with him. But Tychicus said, I don't care what happens to me. My Lord said, I was in prison and you visited me. I was hungry and you fed me. I was naked and you clothed me. So you're in prison, Paul. I'm going to come see you. He stood by Paul in the face of danger, in the face of death. And Paul also valued this man's fellowship. He says he was a fellow servant in the Lord, literally a fellow slave. The Greek word is doulos, and it literally means a slave. The, the New Testament idea of a Christian is not somebody who just goes to church on Sunday and the rest of the week they live like the world. No, no. The New Testament picture of a Christian is once you're saved, you are the Lord's slave. You are a doulos. You are the Lord's slave. When he tells you to go, you go. When he tells you to stay, you stay. What he tells you to do, you do. Your life is no longer your own. You've been bought with a price. You are now the Lord's servant. Yes, even his slave. Sold out, Tychicus was, to Jesus Christ. And he was a faithful minister. Paul knew he could rely on him to keep his hand to the plow and finish his task to the end faithful. When the going gets tough, I don't walk out. When the going becomes difficult, I do not leave. I don't check out. I don't say I didn't bargain for this. I stay faithful to the end. That was the character of these men. And next we have Onesimus. And Onesimus was a fugitive man. The fugitive man. With Onesimus, Paul says, a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, they will make known to you all things which are happening here. So he says, Onesimus is also coming, a faithful and beloved brother. Now, who in the world was Onesimus and why was he a fugitive? Onesimus was a runaway slave. The book of Philemon is all about Onesimus, this guy here. When you read Philemon, Philemon was the slave owner, Onesimus was the slave. And one day Onesimus said, I've had all this fun I can stand. I'm no longer going to stay in this house. I'm not going to be a slave any longer. And he stole some things from Philemon, enough to carry him on the road to Rome. And he fled to Rome where he hoped to get lost in the crowd. But you know what, folks? You can't find a big enough crowd if the Lord's after you. You can't find a big enough crowd that God won't find you. Now, uh, the Holy Spirit had other plans for Onesimus. Here he is. He, he runs. Now, in that day, if you as a slave left your master and you ran away and especially stole things, you were as good as dead. So he's fleeing to Rome for his life. He gets to this metropolitan city, the biggest city on earth in that day. And thinking now he's just going to melt into the crowd, he just happened to somehow encounter the imprisoned Paul. 
Needle in a haystack. But here he is. Now, here's the deal. Philemon had been saved. And now his house was a church. And so you got a brother in Christ whose slave ran away. The slave that ran away was lost, but the, the owner was found. Paul knows all this, so there's a connection. So, so there's this connection, and the Holy Ghost is following up on this man. His master had been done wrong, but God the Holy Ghost is after his soul. So when he encounters Paul, ever on the hunt for the souls of men, the great apostle led him to Christ. Now, for some time afterward, Onesimus stayed at Paul's side. He had the greatest teacher on the face of the earth. There was no better than the Apostle Paul. No doubt, Paul took him under his wing and taught him the ways of the Master, Jesus Christ. But listen, the day came when Paul looked Onesimus right in the eye, and he said something very difficult and very hard to him. He said, you're going to have to go back, and you're going to have to make things right. Now, church, I want you to listen to this. Conversion does not cancel Moral, financial, and social debts. Well, I thought once I got saved, you know, it was all just washed. No. Conversion does not. Listen, if you break the law, lost, you're still a lawbreaker when you're found. Now, you're forgiven by God, but you're going to have to deal with what happened here. Okay? Now, he was a runaway slave. Once he had matured to the level, Paul thought he could handle it. He said, now, Onesimus, you're going to have to go home. I'm going to give you a letter. I'm going to write Philemon, and I'm going to give him a letter. I want you to take it to him. I want you to hand it to him, and I'm going to intercede for you, but you've got to go and make it right. You stole from him, and you ran away from him, and we can't leave it like it is. So he gave him the letter, a masterpiece of persuasion and humble entreaty. In the letter, Paul tells Philemon that Onesimus is now one of you, meaning he's a beloved brother now, Philemon. He's a brother in Christ. And if you want to study one of the best approaches of entreaty in humility and persuasion on the face of the earth, read the letter of Philemon. So Onesimus has been changed now. And now his profession of faith his profession of Christ is put to the test. Are you going to go as the Apostle Paul has asked you to do and God has asked you to do, and are you going to make things right? Are you going to hold true to what you have confessed? And he did. He may have been unfaithful in the past, says Paul, but he's now a faithful brother. And the fact that Onesimus did not run away again on the long road back to Colossae, where he was from, testifies to his new trustworthiness. So notice conversion really did change his life. And I'm going to tell you, church, you can't tell me you've been saved and there's no life change. If you've been saved, it's going to show. You can have religion or you can have relationship. If you've got religion, we won't see much change. But if you've been changed by Christ, if he's really come into your heart, then we're going to see it in your life. And Onesimus, man, and don't you know that was a long walk back. No telling what he's going to do, if he's going to receive me or not, if he's going to, if he's going to have me killed or not. Uh, no telling what his reaction is going to be. But I trust God. And he took the letter and gave it to Philemon. Now next, Paul mentions Aristarchus, the fearless man. 
He says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. Aristarchus also became a companion of Paul on his third missionary journey. He accompanied him to Ephesus. He was captured and almost killed by the mob in the riot raised by Demetrius the silversmith in Acts 19. He also accompanied Paul to Greece and to Asia Minor. He then accompanied Paul to Rome, sharing in the dangers of the voyage and in the shipwreck. Now, I'm going to tell you something, church. They were not driving around in a Cadillac. They didn't have buses and trains and planes. This was long walks and rides on horseback and difficult, perilous journeys. And this Aristarchus stayed with Paul because he was a genuine, true friend. You know, we need friends like that, don't we? That when you're in trouble, they're still there. When you make a mistake, they're still there. When others walk out, you walk in. You love somebody no matter what they've done. You receive them, you embrace them, you stay with them, you're true to them, even to your own hurt. And that was Aristarchus. We don't know when, but Aristarchus paid for his allegiance to Paul by being made a prisoner. Can you imagine that? How many of you would go visit somebody in jail knowing they might just walk up to you and say, why don't you just go on in and join them? And you knew you were going to be locked up. I don't think any of us would go. I don't know if I would go. But Aristarchus did. He said, Paul, I'm not going to leave you. Do you see how they resemble Jesus Christ? not going to leave you, Paul. I'm going to come visit you. If they throw me in, I'm going with you. He was made a prisoner. And tradition tells us he was finally martyred by Nero, the same tyrant that killed Paul, that killed Peter. So Aristarchus's chief traits were loyalty and fearlessness, even to the point of death. He was a genuine foxhole friend. Amen? Now next we hear of Mark, the forgiven man. I'm so glad the Bible tells the truth about the people in it and it shows us that they were not perfect because here's Mark, the forgiven man. Why is he the forgiven man? Notice, with Mark, Paul says, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you receive instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. Now Paul is telling them to welcome Mark because there was a time when Mark and, and Paul parted ways very badly. This Mark is the same Mark whose gospel graces the page of the New Testament. The gospel of Mark. Years earlier, John Mark had greatly disappointed Paul to the point that Paul refused to any longer travel with him. This is one of the few times you kind of see Paul walking in a little bit of flesh. Because Mark disappointed him, Paul said, he can no longer come with us. I don't want him around. Barnabas stood up for Mark. And they had, they had a blowout on the missionary trail. And Mark was sent home, packing. And he was cut off from the great apostle Paul. It was a bad parting. I'm so glad the Bible tells the truth about the people in it. Because now we see, let's just say it, they had a fight. They had a get down and dirty fight. And Paul said, hit the road. You're not coming with me anymore. So this did not look good because Paul was the man. So Mark, guarantee you, with tail tucked, went home 
and for quite some time they were separated. Harsh parting between the two men. Now, it may be that one day Paul read Mark's gospel that was possibly already in circulation and heartily commended it. Whatever the catalyst was, the men were reconciled. Now notice, the bad parting was healed. The parting of ways was not left that way. They were healed. Their first meeting after so many years, it must have been emotional. Mark, I read your letter. Boy, what an incredible gospel. It was inspired. Come on back into the inner circle. Now Paul trusts Mark enough to suggest that he go to Colossae on his behalf. And at the time of Paul's second and fatal Roman imprisonment, when he knows in 2 Timothy he's about to die, Paul had such a high estimate of Mark that he urged Timothy, look what it said, to get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. Now watch this. This man that he had had a parting of ways with, they had left on a bad note. He has so strongly received him back that three people are with him at the end of his life. Luke, Timothy, and he said, bring Mark. I want to see Mark. That's how healed they were. Let me tell you something, church. No matter how bad the parting is, the Lord can heal it. Isn't that what we see right here? Bring Mark with you. Of all the people he could ask for, this was the guy who he said, get him out of here. He can't travel with me anymore. Now bring Mark with you. I want to see Mark. This is the end of the road for me. I want to see you, Timothy. Luke is with me, and I want to see Mark. What a beautiful picture of brotherly forgiveness and restoration. Amen? Now next, Paul mentions Justice the friendly man. Justice, the friendly man. Now, how would you like to have the name Jesus Justice? But that was his name, Jesus, who is called Justice. These are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision. They have proved to be a comfort to me. Now, the full name of Justice was actually Jesus Justice. This shows that the name of Jesus was a fairly common name among the Jews in those days. It was a transliteration of the name Joshua or Yeshua. Paul notes that he was of the circumcision, that is, he was a Jew. Now we find Justice, along with Mark, standing shoulder to shoulder with Paul as his firmest friends. Now Paul says that these men had been a comfort to him. You know that I'm a word guy, I love words. I want to know what words mean. I did not know that comfort meant what I'm about to show you. The Greek word used here for comfort appears only here in the entire New Testament. It's only used in this verse. It happened to be a common medical term, and it meant soothing drug. They have been like a soothing drug for me. You got anybody like that in your life? You get around them, and they're just soothing. They just bring you to peace instead of pieces. They're good for you. They're soothing. He says, these brothers in the Lord have been like a soothing drug to me. They have comforted me. Uh, Justice had been a good Samaritan to Paul. 
pouring soothing balm into his soul, ministering to his physical needs. Isn't that what we need to be for people? Just like a soothing drug. Don't you want people to rejoice when you come walking into the room? Oh, here comes a, a soothing drug. Here comes somebody that's going to bring me peace, that's going to be a comfort to my soul. It's going to speak words of faith to me, words of comfort, words of hope, uplifting words, words of edification. When they leave, I'm going to be soothed. Amen. Now next we encounter Epaphras, the fervent man. Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you. Now, of course, Epaphras was one of them. He was the pastor. Always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. Now notice the name Epaphras. Remember I told you at the beginning of this series, he was the pastor of the Colossian church that this letter was written to. Do you know why he says, Epaphras greets you? Because he was thrown in prison. He wasn't the one that took the letter back. He couldn't take the letter to the Colossians back because they threw him in jail. So here you got the pastor who went to Paul for counsel about what to do about these Gnostics. Paul writes this letter, and in the meantime, Epaphras is imprisoned. So he has to send the letter by somebody else. So Epaphras paid a high price to get his people delivered from a cult. So what did he say about him? He's not sitting around playing a violin. He's laboring fervently for you in prayers that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. He said, you may lock me in prison, but you can't stop me from praying. I'm going to lift him up in prayer. It was Epaphras we first mentioned in this series of the pastor of the Colossian church. Now, three things stood out to Paul concerning Epaphras. First, read this with me. He had a practical fervor. Now, he was a fervent guy. So the first kind of fervency he had was very practical. He was a servant, a slave of Christ. Because he loved Jesus Christ with all of his heart, it was no big deal for him to be the one that volunteered to make the long journey to Rome to see Paul and ask for his counsel. And he was thinking, you know, what if I'm thrown in jail? Well, that's okay, because I am fervent for Jesus Christ. So they threw him in. What does he do? He just gets on his knees and begins to pray for the people that he had come there to get help for. So he had fervency. Second, he had a prayerful fervor. Paul says that Epaphras was always laboring fervently for you in prayers. Can you say the word with me, laboring? Does that sound like rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub, amen? Does that sound like now I lay me down to sleep, pray the Lord my soul to keep? Does that sound like some little kindergartny prayer? Laboring, working in the place of prayer that you might stand perfect and complete in all of God's will. Now let me show you a powerful Greek word. The word for fervent is agonizomai. Phonetic spelling, I got it right there for you, but what do you think we get from that word? Agonizomai. Agony. Do you hear what it's saying about this man's prayers? Have you ever prayed this way? Agonizing. Lord, if you, it, it says of John Knox, who was a, a preacher in Scotland, that he used to pray this way. 
Lord, give me Scotland or I will die. Agony. Have you ever prayed for somebody's soul where you sweated, where you labored, where you cried out? Well, y'all are looking at me like a calf stares in a new gate. Have you ever prayed that way? Well, Pastor Jeff, I don't know if I really have or not. Well, if you don't know if you have, then you may not. But guess what? You will someday. When somebody matters enough to you, you will pray with agony. You will pray, agonizomai. I am agonizing in prayer for this person. Lord, give me this person's soul or I'm going to die. That's the kind of prayer that Jesus had for you and me. Garden of Gethsemane, what was he doing? Agonizing in prayer. He sweated, as it were, great drops of blood. He was agonizing in the place of prayer. That's true intercessory prayer, where you put yourself in the place of the person or people you are praying for, and you agonize for them. God hears that prayer. Third, Epaphras had a, or Epaphras had a personal fervor for his brethren back home. He has a great zeal for you, said Paul. He was a lover of people, a lover of prayer, a lover of Christ. This was what Paul's friends were like. Now next we come to Luke, the famous man. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. By this time in his life, Paul suffered from many infirmities. Can we just tell the truth? By this time in his life, Paul suffered from infirmities. Bible tells us so. He had been beaten and battered times without number. His back was a road map of scars that he had received from getting those, five, those 39 lashes five different times. He had been stoned and left for dead. He had been shipwrecked. He had been through so many tribulations and trials just physically and then he carried his infamous thorn in the flesh whatever you think it was it was not pleasant and it was physical so we see Luke as his attending physician Luke in this sense was a healer from a medical standpoint he was for Paul the beloved physician but even more than that Luke was a historian he remained with Paul through thick and thin because of this he was able to leave the historical record of the book of Acts its pages are crowded with people, 76 of them, and places, some 53 different places in the book of Acts that Luke wrote about. It chronicles the main advance, the book of Acts, of the main advance of the gospel from Jerusalem, the Hebrew capital, to Rome, the heathen capital of the world. And not only that, but he gave us the longest of the Gospels, the book of Luke. And thank God for that. He wrote like a trained scholar, which he was. His Gospel is a masterpiece. I love, there's a pastor I know of uh, that has been a year and a half preaching on the book of Luke on Sunday mornings, and he's not done yet. A year and a half. I'm not feeling led there, but he did it. He portrays Jesus, Luke does, as a very warm, loving human being who at the same time was God. Now next we meet Demas. Are you ready? Demas, the floundering man. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Now notice, he didn't say anything about Demas right here, did he? All the other names, he has told us something about them. But he leaves Demas blank right here. 
Demas is the man that started well and ended badly. His is the only name about which Paul says nothing of note. He just says, and Demas. Started strong, ended badly. Maybe Paul already sensed a flaw in Demas's commitment. In 2 Timothy, he tells us flat out, For Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. Now the word for forsaken here means to leave in the lurch, or we might say throw under the bus. Paul's saying, he threw me under the bus. He left me in a bad time. All these other men that Paul's named stuck with him, even if it meant their own imprisonment, but not Demas. Demas left. Now, let's be clear, he had not departed because he denied the faith. We're not told that. He didn't abandon the truth, but because the world, this world, had gotten the better of him, and it gets the better of Christians all the time. Jesus said, when it comes to this world, here's what gets you, the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. Choke the word, and you become unfruitful. You get so caught up in making money, paying the bills, raising the kids, storing up that 401k, focusing on all the cares and troubles and worries of this world, that the word of God in you is choked. And that's what happened to Demas. He finally woke up one day and said, you know what, Paul? Uh, I'm going to move on. And in Paul's darkest hour, Demas walked out. And how would you like to have your name in the eternal word of God as somebody that walked out? No, no, no. But Paul named names, good or bad, and here he names Demas. And now we come to Nymphus, the fruitful man. We're almost done. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and Nymphus and the church that is in his house. Now quickly, see Laodicea there? You remember Laodicea from Revelations 3? Laodicea being the lukewarm church? Not hot, not cold. Thinking they had everything and didn't need anything. And Jesus said, you don't even know. You are actually miserable, poor, wretched, blind, and naked. That's the Laodicea. And the reason he's mentioning Laodicea is because he's going to tell them to also take this letter to the Colossians, to the Laodicean church, because they also were under attack by the Gnostics. So, Nymphus is the only believer in Laodicea whose name we know. The Laodicean church became famous in the next generation for its wealth and worldliness. But if Nymphus lived up to his name, and his name means bridegroom, then he was still very much in love with the Lord. And finally, we come to Archippus, the faltering man. And he says to Archippus, look what he says, Take heed, Archippus, to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. Now, Paul's meddling here in this man's life. He says some things about Archippus I want to point out. First, that he was probably the son of the slave owner, Philemon. And we see that he had received in the Lord a ministry. Now let me just speak over everybody in this congregation, everyone listening by radio, every believer in here. You know what? You've received a ministry in the Lord because Peter tells us every believer has a gift. Every believer has a gift. 
Now, he says to Archippus, I want you to be sure that you don't neglect the ministry that you receive from the Lord. And that's the only genuine ministry that there is, the one received from the Lord. Can I tell you that tonight, ministry is not a career choice. You don't say, well, you know what, I think I'm just going to go to seminary and become a minister so I can do some good in the world. No, 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 you better have God lay his hand on you. It better be the ordination of the nail-scarred hands. Because if God doesn't lay his hand on you and sends you into ministry, you better not go. It'll chew you up and spit you out. You've got to be anointed and called. But once you are, you better be sure you do it. You better be sure you fulfill it. We see that Archippus had neglected that ministry. Paul says, you better fulfill your ministry. You better fill it full. You better be sure that you do it. You know, when I was 18 years old, well, when I was 16, I was saved in juvenile home. When I was 18, I had an experience with God. It was very supernatural. And he laid his hand on me. I would never say this um, lightly, flippantly. I don't talk about it a whole lot, but it was extremely, exceedingly real, more real to me than anything in this room. He laid his hand on me. He put a fire in my heart. He called me. And he told me, I didn't really tell me, it was like I could not help but preach and teach the word. And once he opened my mouth, it's never shut since. And I'm going to go to heaven preaching. I am. But he laid his hand on me. Never would I have ever, ever, if you had lined up a hundred people and I was one of them, I would have been the last one you would have ever thought would do this. My dad didn't believe it. My mother didn't believe it. My sisters didn't believe it. Some of them still don't. My old friends didn't believe it. <laughs> my old uh, friends, there was just a high school reunion just a couple of weeks ago and I got this email there was a, a reunion. Well, I didn't finish the high school, but I could go anyway. And I got invited. And I hadn't heard from some of these people in f 40 years. And so they emailed me and said, what are you doing? I said, well, I got saved and I'm now I'm a pastor. I'm a preacher. I've been preaching all these years. Never heard back. <laughs> oh, you know, a couple of them, but it was just the shock. Really? Uh, but no, I'm telling you, it was supernatural. Supernatural. And it's a supernatural thing that carries me every day to do what I do. And I'm going to tell you, when God does that, you better fulfill it. You better do it. You better not go off and do anything else. If you can do anything else, then you're not called to preach or to minister. Don't do anything. Do it because you're going to answer to God one day. And I think somebody's listening to me that had a call, maybe by radio. And I'm going to tell you, do it. Fill it to the full. Fulfill it. Don't walk away. 
I know you're hurt. I know you're disillusioned. I know you're disappointed. Don't walk away. The Lord will heal you. He'll restore you. He'll give you a new vision, a fresh hope. But don't walk away. Don't do it. Now finally, as Paul took the pen in his hand once more to sign this letter, an iron fetter chafed his wrist and a long chain stirred on the floor. Think about it. And here's what he said. Remember my chains. Clink, clink, clink. Remember my chains. I'm in prison for preaching the gospel. And he closes with a prayer for grace and a final amen. Look at his friends, loyal, faithful, fearless, true to the end. All but Demas. This is what God wants us to be. Can we stand together? Lord, we just thank you for this testimony of these friends, these men that surrounded Paul, fearless warriors, fighters for the faith, loyal to their own hurt, unafraid of the consequences of being true to their friendship and true to their commitment. Their character, Lord, just jumps out at us tonight. And Lord, we don't want to be like Demas and walk away. We want to be like the rest who fought the good fight, kept the faith, and finished their course. And Lord, we just thank you for it right now in Jesus' name. Let's worship. Let's sing one chorus before we leave tonight. Thank you, Lord. Everyone. Oh, the-